You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. There you go. I feel like I should like dance up here or something with like the jingle bell thing, right? Well, good morning. Welcome. Uh, Merry Christmas, huh? There you go. Welcome to you guys who are here in the room. For those of you guys watching online, it's officially Christmas season. Um, I was out yesterday taking our German shepherd Gus for a walk, and I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is cold. Like December's like right here. So um, I've actually discovered something in this hinge time between Thanksgiving and Christmas that I want to throw out your way, and it's going to help us make this transition from Thanksgiving to Christmas. I, I used to think that like divisiveness was all about like politics or like COVID or vaccine. I actually, I think it's about something else, something much more crucial that I'm going to just throw your way. I think it's about cranberry sauce. <clears throat> So here's the deal. Uh, Each of you is going to have about 30 seconds to turn to your neighbor, and you have to fight about something. You're going to have to fight if it's like actual cranberry cranberry sauce, if that's the way this is supposed to be consumed, or if it's like the out of a can stuff, all right? So you have 30 seconds. Those of you online, go ahead and make your comments in the comment thread. Turn to the person next to you and make your case. Is it actual cranberry sauce or like the sauce shaped like a can? 30 seconds. Go. All right, how many of you are like actual cranberries in the little dish? Okay, how many of you are like cranberry sauce? Oh man, we're like kind of split. Maybe, I felt like it was more the first one. Anyway, I'll just let you take that home. There you go, fight about it later. So what is Advent and what is it all about? Why are we doing this this way? Uh, What's coming this season? Advent, um, it's an old English word. It means coming or arrival. And it's this idea that at this point of the year, we're choosing to focus on what's coming rather than what's leaving. We have less light than we did a couple weeks ago, right? We have less temperatures. We have less time. And if you're Christmas shopping, you have less money than you had a couple of weeks ago. And so instead of focusing on what's left, we're focusing on what's coming. And his name is Jesus. This is where we celebrate the birth of our Savior this time of year called Advent. And so that's what we're doing. That big red box, here's the idea behind all of that. Um, This year as a church, we're going to break up Advent into four different weeks, and each one has a specific focus. This week is worship fully. Worship fully. Next week is spend less. So get your Christmas shopping out of the way before you get convicted next week. Spend less. Week three is give more. And then week four is love all. And so that big red box is broken up into four different things. The messages for these next four weeks are going to follow that exact same thought. Um, So this week is worship fully. And there's a lot of different directions we could go with that. And here's how I want to approach this this year for us. I want to back up and ask the question, why? Why is Jesus worthy of our worship? Why do we orient our entire calendar year around this, right? Remember being a kid, like everything pointed to Christmas morning. What is it about Christmas that that so orients our lives and so consumes us? Why do we give him all of this worship? Now, on the face of it, that sounds like it's unnecessarily disrespectful. Like, he's worthy of worship because he's Jesus. Come on, like, really? 
But I really want us to think about it. Why is this baby born in a manger so worthy of our worship? So here's where we're going this morning. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9. You can flip there, scroll there, open whatever. You can follow along on the screens. Isaiah 9 is this very familiar, very comfortable Christmas time text. Isaiah 9 is built like a drum roll that starts out in verse 1, and it ends in a cymbal crash in verse 6. Actually, four cymbal crashes. Because Isaiah wants us to see who this coming king is, this king who will come in one day in Isaiah's world, about 700 years out in the future. These four titles, these four descriptions that tie to this king, four titles that then as now push against four lies that we are still tempted to believe. And so as we walk through Isaiah 9, just briefly this morning, I believe that in seeing God's plan, you can enjoy his promise. And so here it is in case you missed it. We can only worship fully when we see Jesus clearly. And so that's all we're going to do this morning is just Isaiah 9, just go, take a look at who Jesus is, this one day coming king. And we'll talk about why he's so worthy of our worship. So ready to go? Isaiah chapter 9. Before we get there, a little bit of context for us. Who is Isaiah? And why is he writing? So Isaiah lived near Jerusalem about 750 B.C., so seven and a half centuries before Jesus. And like most Old Testament prophets, his message has two distinct emphases. The first emphasis is judgment. Because God's people have turned their hearts against them, Isaiah is God's mouthpiece to say that judgment is coming in the form of their neighboring kingdom to the north, Assyria. These are some pretty bad dudes. They're going to come down and they're going to cripple God's people. Judgment. But then on the heels of judgment, Isaiah also talks about hope. That even though God's people have turned their hearts against him, even though they've abandoned him, he's not abandoned them. Even though they've said, we're done with you, he is not done with them. Anybody else thankful that we serve an even though God? Something to file away. Anytime you're reading God's word and you see notes of God's judgment, you always, 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 always see notes of God's hope that follow up. Because this is what our God does. We should remember that. So Isaiah sees this darkness coming from the north, crippling God's people. And imaginatively, he uses this image of a tree stump. And he says, God's people are about to become as purposeless and as powerless as a tree stump. And then he leans in and he looks forward and then he whispers like some soft and holy secret. He says, but shoots can still grow from tree stumps, can't they? So if that resonates with you at all, here is this light finally breaking through the clouds, chapter 9. Let's take a look in verse 1. Here's what Isaiah says. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. He personifies God's people. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. So Zebulun and Naphtali, that means next to nothing to most of us. 
Here's what you need to know about those. Those are the two most northern tribes in Israel. The two most vulnerable. The two most exposed to an attack from Syria. The places that had the most concern for worry. And doesn't it just seem like our God to start there? (laughs) To say, look, the places that are most vulnerable, the places that are most exposed, doesn't it just sound like what Jesus does? He starts there. So starting at the most vulnerable, the most exposed, the most open, Isaiah starts, and he imagines Advent like the sudden welcome onset of dawn. Isn't that a beautiful image? He talks about a light that has come, a light that has shone. This is the early morning's light peeling up at the dark edges of deep night, the early flecks of a sunrise in the pre-dawn sky. What a beautiful picture that is. That's what Advent feels like. In the uncertainty of his moment, with God's people under political threat, God's promises that he's made for centuries on the line, Isaiah lifts his eyes and he sees something out there. Someone's coming, someone who's not yet here, whose birth is as certain as if it were already done. Don't you love it? That's in the past tense. A light has dawned. A light has 700 years later. But he looks at it, and knowing God, it's as good as done. How beautiful is that? Then he talks about what this light will feel like. Take a look in verse 3. He says, you've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy of the harvest, as when they are glad when they divide the spoil. Some of you know this quick Bible study tactic, but for those who don't, Whenever you're trying to understand what God's word is saying, you look for phrases, words, or images that are repeated. And so what's, what word, three-letter word, is repeated here? What was it? Joy. That's what Advent should feel like. Joy. Not just happiness, the surfacey stuff. Like joy, like this is the thing that we've been waiting for. Well, why? What reason do God's people have to be joyful in this yet-to-get-here day? Remember, they're living in the throes of a divided kingdom, and Assyria is breathing down their necks. And so Isaiah begins his drum roll with this deep, evocative military imagery. And what comes next is this threefold reason for joy. So if you're in the habit of writing in your Bible, you'll notice verse 4, verse 5, and verse 6 all begin with the word for. These are three building drum rolls, three kind of overlapping reasons for joy. So we'll start with the first one, verse 4. He says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. What's all that about? Sounds a little strange to us. Some weird imagery there. Here's what Isaiah is alluding to. Assyrian kings, Israel's neighbor to the north, took great delight in talking about how they imposed heavy yokes on their captors. They literally shackled them and put yokes on their necks. It's a sign of dominance and power, the ability to keep somebody else down by lifting yourself up. Interesting little bit of biblical foreshadowing. What do you remember Jesus saying about his yoke? Is it oppressive? Is it domineering? Is it heavy? No. Is our king about something else? Yeah. 
So here Isaiah imagines a day when someone stronger than the Assyrians, which would have been unimaginable to God's people at this time, will come along and snap those yokes like toothpicks. That had to be great news for people who lived their entire lives in fear of what could happen, what might happen, and what was likely going to happen. This completely contingency plan life. And Isaiah says, no, somebody's coming. It's the first reason for joy. Second reason, you see it right there in verse 5. The drum roll continues with a second four. He says this, For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood. Literally, every boot stamping in rhythm, every blood-soaked shirt. How about that for Christmas cards, by the way? Like, I haven't seen that one. Will be burned as fuel for the fire. Like, all of that war imagery is going to be gone. One day, burned as fuel for the fire, as memorable as a wisp of smoke from a dissipating candle. (sighs) Then his third four in verse six. Here's what he says. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, hold on, time out, hang on, what, a kid? A kid is going to do all this? All of this hangs on a toddler, a child, a baby? Are you serious? We're going to get to that in just a bit. But before we go any further and spend most of our time this morning and what comes next, there's something that I want us to see here. These aren't three separate reasons for joy, okay? This is really critical we get this. Verses 4, 5, and 6, these aren't three separate disconnected reasons. If you're building an outline, this isn't point A, B, and C. Not how this works. These aren't three separate causes for joy, three different realities. They are a part of each other. They belong together. They relate to each other. Think about these things like those, um, those Russian like Matryoshka dolls. You know those like nesting dolls where like the outer one holds the, the second one, the second one holds the third one. And when you get to that inner one, you realize like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to see. That's how these fours, that's how these reasons for joy relate to each other. You start with the outer one that says, okay, good, peace, okay, great, the end of war. But then you get to this middle one, for a child is coming. It's interesting because when you read those first two, you go, well, how is this even going to happen? God You're going to bring an end to all war. You're going to bring perfect peace. How? And in characteristic form, God answers our how with a who. Now that Isaiah has their attention, now that all of their hope is fixed, targeted, pinned to one person, Isaiah wants us to know who this person is, what he's like, and why he's so worthy of our worship. And to do that, he distills all of this theology down into four titles, four titles that describe this coming king, four titles that capture why he's so worthy of worship, four titles that push back against four lies that we here 2,700 years later in North Canton, Ohio, are tempted to believe just as much as God's people have always believed across time. And so with that said, here's Isaiah's final push. Look at it again. For to us a son is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those four titles must have hit God's people like a fly ball out of left field. 
Really? Like wonderful counselor? This king who knows us that well? Really? Mighty God? Really? Every king we've ever known, even the most noblest among them, is still all about themselves. Everlasting father? These guys don't act like fathers to us. They don't even care. Prince of peace? What, are you joking? We haven't seen peace in like forever, Isaiah. All of this wrapped up in one child. Okay. So to get at the beauty of why this king is so worthy of our worship, let's take a look at each of these four titles. First, we're going to talk about what each one means. Then we're going to talk about the lie that we need to confront. And then how each one of these titles connect to the beauty of the gospel. You ready? Okay, here we go. Title number one, Wonderful Counselor. I love this one. You hear the phrase counselor, and you might think of like a very warm person, a very calm office. Somebody who asks really good questions and speaks very encouraging words, maybe like a couch off to the side. You know. We think of the word counselor, it's kind of what we think of. And we should, because there is some truth to that. But literally, there's more to it in here. The Hebrew, if you're just going to read it literally, says, a wonder of a counselor. This is two ideas in one, wonderful or wonder and counselor. So let's take them each at a time. First, wonder, wonderful. This is a person who does miraculous things, impossible things. That's what he means by wonderful there. Here's the thing. Throughout the entire Old Testament, that word is only ever always reserved for God. You wouldn't say, how is your Thanksgiving? Wonderful. Not that word. <laughs> this is just for God. This shows up in Genesis 18 where childless Sarah conceives and she says, is anything too hard or too wonderful for the Lord? They're free from Egypt. God's people say, who is God like you among all gods doing wonders? Jeremiah says it when he says, oh God, you've made heavens and the earth. Is anything too hard for you? This is this miraculous jaw-dropping, has to be nobody but God movement. That's what that phrase is. But then Isaiah pairs it with the word counselor. This one's a little bit easier for us to understand. This is somebody who offers wise counsel, gives good advice, understands the way things should be. So stop for a second. What makes a counselor good? It isn't their office. It isn't their lighting or their couch or their questions. A counselor is good not because they know stuff, but because they know you. So let's put these two ideas together. This coming king, one day king, would do miraculous things for God's people because he knows God's people. Think about how different that must have sounded to people in this world at this time whose leaders had ever only been anything but. Think about how different that is for us today. Nothing much changes. This miraculous king will do miraculous things for God's people because he knows God's people. Now, let's lift this up out of its context a little bit and overlay it into our world today. We said that each one of these titles connects to a lie that we're tempted to believe. And here's this one. God doesn't see me. God doesn't know me. I am invisible. I am anonymous. God has forgotten about me. God doesn't think about me. 
Do you believe that God knows you? And not just the fake you that shows up sometimes, like the deep you. Do you believe that he sees you and knows you? My mind goes to these great gospel scenes. You think about the woman at the well in John chapter 4. She's been married five times. Her life is a mess. Jesus sees her, knows her, and loves her anyway. Zacchaeus, this greedy little penny-pinching mooch. <laughs> Jesus sees him, knows him, and loves him anyway. Peter, right? <laughs> the overambitious, trigger-happy blowhard. Jesus sees him, knows him, and loves him anyway. You and me. How much time and effort do we spend hiding our real selves from those around us, projecting perfection, manicuring the lawns of our life on our knees with fingernail clippers, trying to get it all right, all the while Jesus knows us, sees us, and loves us anyway. So here's the gospel truth behind this phrase, wonderful counselor. God sees you, knows you, and loves you anyway. One of my favorite writers, a guy named Brennan Manning. Cool name. <clears throat> Brennan Manning, he puts it like this. God loves us as we are, not as we should be. God loves you as you are, not as you should be. For the image obsessed, it sounds like this. I should look like this, right? For the status inclined, I should have this by now. I should have arrived. For the hopelessly addicted, I shouldn't be dealing with this anymore. And as we put all those shoulds and should nots into the can of our life, all those shoulds and should nots become shame. So we live lives of defeat and darkness and despair. But the gospel, prefigured 700 years before Jesus ever shows up, invites us to believe the seemingly unbelievable truth that all of your shoulds and should nots can't change the fact that the creator, God of the universe, loves you so much and he sees you completely and loves you anyway. And there's nothing that you can do to stop them. Jesus wants to do jaw-dropping, miraculous things in you because he sees you and he loves you. That's wonderful, counselor. Title number two, Mighty God. Mighty God. So if this first title speaks to what this king sees, this title speaks to what this king does. And just a quick spoiler alert, if you're wondering what this king can do, the answer is whatever he wants to. <laughs> like the first title, this title is two ideas smushed together. You got mighty and you got God. So mighty, this word is used 150 times in the Old Testament. It means heroic warrior or victorious king. This is someone you're counting on for victory, particularly in a battle that you can't win on your own. Hold on to that idea for a minute. This is someone who conquers an unconquerable enemy, not just because of what he can do, but because of who he is. And then you've got that word God, mighty God. Think about how Isaiah's audience would have heard that. Have you ever been so desperate for something to happen that like only God can do that? Like, you're done asking for help everywhere else, and you just go, oh, I have. It's a really vulnerable, tough place to be, right? And you think about where God's people are in the throes of a divided kingdom, Assyria right on top of them, ready to cripple them, facing annihilation and extinction. They could have said anything. They could have said, like, God, just give us a leader like Abraham, because, boy, like, he could just lead us wherever. 
Give us a leader and a liberator like Moses, right, who can stand defiantly and go after. Give us somebody like David. Heck, we'll even settle for Saul. Like, at least he put us on the map. And then Isaiah goes, wait, 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 wait. How about God himself? What if God's design is to be with you? Would that be good? Think about that. Like, in the beginning, God, God, like God who split the sea, God, like God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God. He's like, yes, this is the God your fathers have worshipped for generations. He's gone before you. He's been around you. He split seas ahead of you, and he surrounded Pharaoh's army. You don't have to worry about it, and soon he's going to be with you so he can conquer an enemy for you, that kind of God. But now here's the question. It's a question I ask if you're really looking for what God can do. If this mighty God can do whatever he wants, to which enemy will he turn his attention? That's how you know where the real threat is, right? Which enemy will this king conquer? If he can do anything, what will he do? Let that sit there for a second. Here's the lie behind this one that we need to acknowledge because it's pushing back against something that some of us might be tempted to believe. It sounds like this. God won't protect me. Maybe he can, but he won't. Not from those enemies, and those are the enemies that I'm concerned about, God. Where were you, God? Ever felt like that? We think we know who the real enemy is, and so we fight battles on our own. And when we fight battles on our own, we always end up frustrated and tired. We'd long to see the mighty hand of God delivering us, but he's already won a battle that we can't even see. <laughs> and so with a list of potential enemies that he could fight, here's what I want us to see. Our king won the right battle because our king fought and conquered the right enemy. That is a very big deal. The deepest need for lost humanity, he fulfilled. The good news of the gospel says that our mighty king delivered us from our ultimate threat, life apart from him, and his greatest weapon is his greatest provision, his life. You see the gospel prefigured in here. This is so, so good. Our king shows his might, not by his arrogance, but by his humility, our king shows how good he is and how much he wins, not by asserting his rights, but by giving them up. And get this, he was eager to do it. Here's what it sounds like. Here's how Paul talked about it. Though he was in the very form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Doesn't sound like a mighty God to me. Therefore, <laughs> therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our King is worthy of worship because seeing our vulnerability, he became vulnerable. 
Our king is worthy of worship because seeing our humanity, he became human. Our king is worthy of worship because despite what people may have thought about him, he is the mighty God. That's title number two. First title, what our king sees. Second title, what our king does. Third title, how this king acts. Everlasting Father. And here, our human understanding of God gets stretched almost to its breaking point. That word everlasting can't be ignored. When he says that, everlasting father, there's never been a point where this king has not been, and there's never been a point where he won't be. What is that? And then you've got this word father. This is almost shocking when you consider the cultural context around God's people. Remember their neighbor to the north? Who is it? Assyria. Assyrian kings demanded that their subjects call them father. And not in like some loving, encouraging, comfy, cozy way. (laughs) In a domineering, submit, get on your knees, respect my authority or else kind of way. Sometimes they demanded that their people sacrifice their own children (laughs) as tribute to them. And so father meant fear. Looking at surrounding kingdoms, the common vision from fatherhood, at least according to God's people, if it wasn't for God, is self-serving, temporal, and ultimately destructive. And so the question looms, is this king going to be like that? And against all of that backdrop, God's word seems so intent on correcting that feeling. When they came out of the Exodus, Moses encouraged God's people. I love this. Here's what he says. In the wilderness, there you saw how God carried you like a father carries his son. Psalm 103, David says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And by the time you get to the New Testament, This doctrine of God as Father is developed so fully. Paul says that we are chosen by our Father, loved, adopted, called, predestined, holy, blameless. It's Ephesians 1. Romans 8, he says we can pray. And when we pray, we can say, Abba, Father, which is the Aramaic word for Daddy. Are you kidding me? And in Galatians 4, he says, you're not slaves anymore. You're actually sons. And if you're sons, you're also heirs. As good as that sounds, there's a lie lurking underneath it. Here it is. And I know it's common because our culture's version of father, although slightly more sanitized than Assyria, is really not that much different. It sounds like this. God's just not interested in me. He may know me, but he's not interested in me. If God's a father, he's sitting on his couch, thumbing through his iPhone, distracted, disinterested. Just doesn't care. Not interested in who I'm becoming. Not interested in where I've been. He may have made me, but he doesn't love me. And if any part of you is tempted to believe that, here's what I want you to see. A good father shows his love by what he gives up. 
A good father shows his love by what he gives up. A good father gives up the best that he is for his children. And get this, a good father never stops. This is everlasting. There has never been a time, nor can there ever be a time, where God won't love you. His father heart never stops beating for you. You are always on his mind. You are always in his heart. You are always important to him. Now get this, in the Gospel of John, when Jesus said, I and the Father are one, here's what he means. He means, I am so about my Father's heart that we're basically undistinguishable. When you see me, you see him. And God's heart is always about reconciliation, about bringing prodigals home. And get this, when this one-day king sets foot on earth, one of his objectives will be to so embody the heart of that father that people get it and go, oh my gosh, whoever could love me like that? And then to finally, fully, and freely offer himself as a sacrifice to accomplish that reconciliation by his death. So when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, that's what he's talking about. In the cross, our Father does not impose his egotistical will on his children. He gives himself up for us. In the cross, our Father doesn't ignore his children. He pursues us, chases us down, always wants to be with us. In the cross, the Father doesn't see us as a means to his ends. He blesses us because our Father is good. That's title three. Everlasting Father. Last title. You have wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. So when you think about peace, you hear that word, your mind might go to a couple places. You may think of like a peace sign, right? Some, some 60s stuff just hanging around back there. You may think of like a quiet sunrise over a still and tranquil lake. My favorite, peace, love, and little donuts, just saying. Your mind can go to a lot of different places because peace is a great word. If I asked you, I'd be really interested. Let's just do another quick poll here this morning. What's the absence of peace? War. Most of us would say that. The absence of peace is war. The Hebrew concept of peace is much different than that. It's much richer than that. It's based on the Hebrew word shalom. And it means much more than just the absence of war, when everything's quiet and nice and hunky-dory. The Hebrew concept of peace means a condition in which all things move to their destiny undisturbed. That's what shalom means. A condition in which all things move to their destiny undisturbed. This is a river with no dam in the way. This is a sun with no clouds blocking the light out. This is all creation moving, flowing, functioning as it was always intended to be. Now here's the thing. We only know shalom by its absence. We've never known that. Even on our best days. There's always the, that dull ache, unidentifiable but deep. We live in the tensions of things that are not. And I sort of appreciate the sentiment behind like, well, you know, behind every cloud there's a silver lining. The weird part of that is that we for, seem to forget that we were created for an existence with no clouds at all. We've never known shalom. All we have is unshalom, anti-peace. We just don't have it. Even on the best days, there's something wrong. And isn't this like just the feeling of the last few years? Like, I watch the same news that you guys do. Quick recap, Kenosha. Waukesha, Houston, right? That's just this last month. What do you do with all this? 
I know what we do with it. We have one of two options. Most people, we do one of two things. We either shake our heads in disbelief and go, oh, gosh, what's wrong with our world? Disconnect. Or we get angry and start pointing fingers. and go, you know what the reason, the problem with this? You know whose fault this is? Their fault. Whoever your version of their is this week, right? And the funny thing is, the ironic thing, is that both of those postures inevitably end up in the same place. We get cynical and we go, Prince of Peace, are you joking? If Jesus is here, he's either disinterested or he's powerless. And so like these other terms, this one has a lie that we need to confront. And it's so important to see because it's so hard to believe. Here's what this forced lie sounds like. God can't change this. Not that he won't, but he can't. Or if you want to put it personally, God can't change me. I am what I've done. What I've done can't be undone. Who I am, I will always be. Whatever happened to me is me. And some of you believe that because you've lived without shalom for so long that it seems normal. And into that dark space, Isaiah wants to introduce you to a king who will rule in such a way that the crooked paths in me can be made straight, that everything that's lost can be found, and that broken lives are healed. The gospel says that you are not what happened to you. The gospel says that you are not what you've done. The gospel says that you aren't even who you think you are. Now, why does that even matter? What does this have to do with this? At its core, The gospel is not a call to just like sit quietly while the bombs go off around us in our world. At its core, the gospel is a call to mission. Why? Only changed people change their world. You want to see a changed world? Anybody? I do. Where does it start? Here. If I want to see change there, it must start here. Nothing changes out there until I am changed in here. The word for that is reconciliation. (laughs) Thinking of this Prince of Peace, one Bible commentator puts it like this. Somehow through him will come the reconciliation between God and man that will then make reconciliation between man and man possible. So good. Here's how Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Just listen to this and tell me if you can get there. From now on, therefore, we regard No one according to the flesh. What's that mean? You don't look at people the way the world does. You don't. Those labels don't matter. You kidding me? We regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. That sounds great. I'm changed, sweet. Then he continues, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake He made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What does all that mean? (laughs) The best way to thank this Prince of Peace for changing you is to partner with him in changing his world. It doesn't just stop with me. 
Why is he worthy of our worship? Because he can change anything. And one day he will change everything. And if we've been changed by him, we eagerly live as reconcilers for him, not just as peacekeepers, but as peacemakers who refuse to see people as just people with worldly positions, but as image bearers with kingdom potential. Now let's bring all this back to Isaiah. All of this, God sees you, God protects you, God loves you, and God can change you. That's what these four are speaking to. God sees you, he protects you, he loves you, and he can change you. That is a lot of weight for a child. Do you know of anybody that can handle that? Do you believe that Jesus can do that? Do you believe that he can do that for you? Do you know of anybody else who needs to hear that? So here's where I want us to go as a church this week. We've got our big red boxes. We've got Advent devotionals. You've got some stuff online. It's going to be a great Christmas season. I can't wait. Here's how I want us to start off. Take those four lies. Here they are again in case you missed it. God doesn't see me. God won't protect me. God doesn't love me. And God can't change me. Take all four of those lies and ask yourself, which one am I most tempted to believe? Or which one do I find myself believing? Or if you really want to get point on it, which one does the enemy want to convince me of? God doesn't see me, God won't protect me, God doesn't love me, and God can't change me. Ask me which one of those is like, "Eh, that's the sore spot for me. And then, secondly, ask yourself, what Jesus has done to work to convince you otherwise. That yes, God sees you. Yes, he protects you. Yes, he loves you. And yes, he can change you. And this is why he is so worthy of our worship. And in worshiping fully, not just with our lips or just singing some songs this year, just going through the same old stuff. To worship fully Hold those things very tightly. Hold them very closely. They are so important to see Jesus rightly. Let me pray for us. Father, when you gave us your son, you gave us more than we ever could have imagined. You planned and saw his coming from eternity past thinking about us in our needful state, in our lonely state, in our lost state. We're so overcome by fear. And you gave us your son so that we would know that we are known, that we are protected, that we are loved, and so that we can be changed. So Father, would you do that? For those in this room, those watching online, for our friends and our families and our neighbors, Father, Let this Christmas, let the gospel be so clearly taught and thought from this place, God. We love you. We give you our Christmas season this year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, 
It goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.